The art world is a man's world, or at least it used to entirely be one. This shouldn't surprise anyone who is a longtime listener of the Art Curious podcast, because we've touched multiple times on the differences and the difficulties that have faced women who have sought careers as artists. Now, thankfully, in the age of hashtag me too, the male heaviness of the art world is changing a bit, as it is in other facets of society. But turning back the clock to any other era in history, and the reality is that it was totally a man's game. And the absolute manliness of it all was compounded intensely in one particular time and place, post-war America, where it was all about brusque machismo, the biggest innovations, and the biggest splash. It was a measuring contest like none other, and two larger-than-life characters were at the center of it all. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are continuing our series on great rivalries in art history with the bitter, twisty relationship between Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Our story of one of the gnarliest wars in modern art begins not with our artists themselves, but with another man entirely. He was born Ivan Dabrowski in Kiev, in what was then part of Russia in the 1880s. The exact date of his birth is actually disputed. After earning a law degree and serving in the Tsarist military before fleeing Russia during the revolution, Dabrowski ended up in Paris, where he was surrounded and stunned by the modern art being created there. We're talking serious game changers like Pablo Picasso, Giorgio de Chirico, Fernand Leger, Henri Matisse, Hannah Hawk, and the like. And it was an eye-opener for Dabrowski. By the early 1920s, he had moved to New York, and it was there that he began his pursuit of a career as a painter, and he changed his name to the Yankee-friendly moniker John Graham. Graham himself did end up being an influential artist, as well as a writer and an art collector himself. But his story is important for us today because he served as kind of a conduit for what would become the ultimate art world brawl. He was a middleman, the person who would ultimately be the impetus for bringing our two main figures together. It began with the connections he made at the famed Art Students League in New York, where he studied painting under the lauded Ashcamp School artist and member of the art group The Eight, John Sloan. During his tenure at the Art Students League, Grant became the center of a social and experimental art circle that involved many of the up-and-comers who would later become bold names in art history textbooks. Stuart Davis, Arshal Gorky, and a Dutch transplant to the U.S. named Willem de Kooning. Born in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, in 1904, Willem de Kooning had left school at the age of 12 to begin an apprenticeship with a group of commercial artists, eventually getting work as a commercial artist himself. 
He was trained classically at the Rotterdam Academy of Fine Arts and Technique and immediately made waves as a highly skilled draftsman. But like so many others before and after him, de Kooning felt that Europe was quickly becoming an unstable and unfriendly place. So he, like Graham, escaped to the U.S., landing in New York in 1927 after stowing away on a ship, which is a detail that adds a significant amount of badassery to the story. Strangely enough, he didn't come to the U.S. with hopes of being a fine artist, but originally had dreams of achieving the kind of heights depicted in many of the popular movies he'd seen in Rotterdam. The Wild West, the glitter of Hollywood, the big money of the big city. But after toiling in various jobs, as a commercial artist and a house painter primarily, for nearly a decade, de Kooning finally segued his talents into a job as a mural painter under the Works Progress Administration in 1936, a life-changing experience which convinced him to take up painting full-time and eventually led to a sea change in the course of modern art. Willem de Kooning had never stopped painting and working in fine arts, even while he was seeking odd jobs in the first decade after his arrival in the United States. And before he lucked out with the WPA gig, he sought opportunities to take time out and hone his craft. And it was during such a moment, when he was painting at an artist colony in Woodstock, New York in 1928, that he first met John Graham. De Kooning and John Graham got along famously and stayed close throughout the 1930s and 1940s. In many ways, Graham became something of a mentor to de Kooning and other burgeoning modernists of the time, and he did what he could to support their careers. In 1942, he curated an exhibition at Macmillan Inc., a gallery in New York City, where he showed a handful of American modernists alongside works by established artists like Picasso, Matisse, Brock, and Modigliani. Included in the show was de Kooning, alongside Stuart Davis, and a very promising painter out of Brooklyn named Lee Krasner. We'll be circling back around to Krasner more fully in our next episode. Suffice to say that Davis, de Kooning, and Krasner had all known each other prior to the Macmillan Gallery installation. Who none of them knew all that well, though, was a rough and ready guy by the name of Jackson Pollock. Paul Jackson Pollock was born in Cody, Wyoming in 1912 as the youngest of five sons. Throughout his earliest years, his family ambled through the West, moving from Wyoming to Arizona before finally settling in California. When Jackson, as he was known, was eight years old, his father abandoned their family, leaving his mother Stella in charge of their brood. Stella was a proud, strong, and sometimes overbearing woman who had artistic aspirations herself. So while she may not have supported her children's artistic leanings in the same way that a parent today might, she certainly didn't deter it. Just as important was the influence of another family member. Charles, Jackson's older brother, was himself a talented artist who took on the role of father figure to his little brother and encouraged and inspired him to take heart in his own talent. This was particularly helpful because while Pollock was in high school in Los Angeles, he was flailing badly and ended up being expelled twice, not quite sure how that happened, before just giving up on the endeavor entirely. But it was all good because he had art and Charles had a plan. Charles Pollock had moved to New York to study at the Art Students League in 1926 under Thomas Hart Benton, a leading figure in social realism and figural art in America at the time. Charles convinced Benton that his little brother had the right stuff 
and encouraged Benton to take him on as a student. And so in 1930, Jackson Pollock joined the league and his official training as an artist began. And it wasn't just Benton's style and academic mentorship that would end up having a great influence on Pollock. He would also become another father figure to replace his own absentee dad. Pollock became so close to the Benton family that he would even babysit Benton's son. But like a real father-son relationship, it sometimes had its downsides, especially the carrying on of some not-so-great traits. Benton was a heavy drinker with a penchant for showy machismo, and this was like catnip to the 18-year-old Jackson Pollock. He would adopt those same tendencies, later to very devastating effect. Much like Willem de Kooning, Pollock began working as an independent artist in 1936. Though he struggled for several years to find his voice, at the end of 1942, he had several breakthroughs, one of which being that he was selected as one of the artists in John Graham's Macmillan exhibition. In advance of the opening for the Macmillan show, a curious Lee Krasner convinced Willem de Kooning to go with her to see Jackson Pollock in his studio. Interestingly, both Pollock and Krasner thought that this was their first meeting, but it actually wasn't, having been briefly introduced in 1936 when, while working at the WPA simultaneously, Pollock asked Krasner out on a date. It didn't take at that point, obviously, and it wasn't until the studio visit in 1942 that either really made an impression on one another. But the stars aligned at this point, and they became romantically linked quickly after that. The relationship between Pollock and de Kooning, well, rivalry, really, didn't actually begin until a bit later. In his reminiscences about their first meeting, it turned out that de Kooning recalled very little and it seemed to have hardly any lasting effects on either his art or himself personally. But Pollock had a different reaction. According to Sebastian Smee in his fantastic book, The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals, and Breakthroughs in Modern Art, Pollock keenly saw that he had one singular advantage over the Dutchman. He was a true-blooded American, born and raised, and even better, he was a Westerner. Thus, de Kooning may have viewed him on a personal front with not a little bit of envy due to his own wishes and predilections for the glamour of the mythologized West. This early interaction helped Pollock realize he could play up his cowboy persona to his advantage and, to a lesser degree, helped to establish his own cult of personality. It wasn't only Jackson Pollock's cool masculine vibe that gave him a leg up on de Kooning. As mentioned previously, he had an incredible year in 1942 in a way that jump-started his career so fervently that there was no turning back. He was really making it happen. First and foremost, Peggy Guggenheim, a wealthy American heiress and art patron, had opened an influential art gallery in New York called Art of the Century. And at the urging of the gallery's assistant director, Howard Putzel, as well as that of artist Pete Mondrian, Guggenheim agreed to include one of Pollock's works, called Stenographic Woman, in a juried exhibition that shot him to stardom. In an article for The Nation, Clement Greenberg, who was probably the most famous art critic ever, described Pollock as, quote, the strongest painter in America. A huge honor. Pollock would go on to have two solo exhibitions with Peggy Guggenheim before she closed up the Art of This Century Gallery and decamped to Europe in the late 1940s. But she didn't just ditch Pollock. She made another move that would significantly alter his life. That's coming up next, right after this quick break. 
Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. My love of learning didn't stop when I finished school. I actually find that there is still so much more that I want to learn about. And I'm sure that it's the same for you. And that is why I am so excited to tell you about The Great Courses Plus. It is this wonderful streaming service that I've been enjoying for the last few months. And you get the chance to learn about anything that interests you from leading professors and experts in every field. You can learn about topics ranging from art, literature, history, science, photography, cooking, and so much more. On The Great Courses Plus, there's unlimited access to over 10,000 fascinating lectures. You can watch from anywhere or listen along through The Great Courses Plus app. Right now, I've been enjoying a course on The Great Courses Plus called How to Draw. It features these wonderful, easy step-by-step tutorials on drawing shapes, on line, composition, shading, and it gives a lot of background not only for beginners like me, but also for more experienced artists. And I've learned so much from The Great Courses Plus. And I also want you to benefit from it, too. They are giving Art Curious listeners a full free month of unlimited access to their entire library. But to get started, you must go to my special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Be sure to start your free month today. You can sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Today's episode of Art Curious is sponsored by Renolda House Museum of American Art, where you can find one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in a beautiful, unique domestic setting. The restored 1917 mansion of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds, surrounded by gorgeous gardens and peaceful walking trails. As a North Carolinian, I've enjoyed numerous visits to Renolda, especially over the last few years. And I've got to say that not only is it a place to see world-class art, but to do so in such a breathtaking and charming setting is truly a wonderful experience. Upcoming exhibitions include Dorothea Lange's America in fall 2018 and Hopper to Pollock, American Modernism in spring 2019. You can browse Renolda's art and decorative arts collections and see what's coming up next at their website, renoldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house.org. And even better, visit in person in historic Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome back to Art Curious. Jackson Pollock married Lee Krasner in 1945, and a month after their wedding, they moved out to Long Island, settling in the little hamlet of Springs in East Hampton. It was in his spring studio that Pollock began experimenting with his painting methods, leading him to start dribbling and splattering paint directly onto his canvases, often while they were laying unstretched on the floor. When Clement Greenberg, ever a Pollock champion, saw them, he was astounded and identified them for what they were, a turning point in art, the new direction. And when Peggy Guggenheim got wind of this, she did something that seems rather magnanimous. Since her New York gallery had closed up shop, she went to another space, the Betty Parsons Gallery, and convinced Parsons herself to take on Pollock and show these brand new works. 
The Betty Parsons Show in 1948 wasn't just the most successful of Pollock's career to date, but it also catapulted him to art star status practically overnight. And by the following year, he was a household name, having landed on the cover of Life magazine. The works from 1949 and 1950 are often heralded as Pollock's very best. Frequently considered a singular monument among these is Autumn Rhythm, number 30, now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Autumn Rhythm is that perfect showpiece of Pollock's active style, seemingly spontaneous, but actually rather controlled at the same time. It's kind of like jazz. It might look like your five-year-old can make it, but it's way more complicated than that. He began this and many other works, with diluted black paint splashed onto the canvas as a kind of base layer before, in this case, adding webs of white, brown, and even a flick of blue paint here and there. Your eyes dance over these canvases. It's really hard to stop and look in one place. And perhaps that's the point. It's abstract expressionism, after all, and is thus a nice expression of the controlled chaos of modern life. Now, we should never underestimate the power of good old envy as a motivator. Among the many who viewed Pollock's trailblazing spatter-painted show at Betty Parsons was Willem de Kooning. De Kooning had kept tabs on Pollock's career all through the 1940s while struggling with his own career, and the drip paintings, as Pollock's new pieces were deemed, totally astounded him. De Kooning found himself taken aback by the spontaneous, almost accidental qualities of the drip works, something which confounded de Kooning himself. His own attempts at such impulsiveness hadn't yet worked out very well. He was a perfectionist and often spent time editing and effectually erasing portions of his works instead of adding to them. But de Kooning saw what Pollock had done, and he knew he needed to brush up on his game. And thankfully, his pieces, with looser, more expressive brushstrokes and a greater emphasis on the human, especially female figure, growing more and more abstract on a seemingly daily basis. Luckily, in the same year as Pollock's Betty Parsons blockbuster, de Kooning had his own first solo exhibition at the Charles Egan Gallery. Although none of his works sold, he received solid praise from several critics, including Clement Greenberg. And after years of toil, it was clear that de Kooning was beginning to find his own voice. De Kooning's arrival on the scene as a solid player made Jackson Pollock sit up and take notice. In 1950, he noted to fellow artist Great Hardigan that, quote, and bad word warning here, everyone is shit but de Kooning and me. To me, this shows that Pollock understood, even just begrudgingly, that de Kooning was growing in importance, and possibly also that that was beginning to worry him. And thus began a great parry of back and forths between him and Pollock as each tried to grab the crown of greatest living American artist. The early 1950s produced some of Willem de Kooning's most important works of his career, his Woman series, wherein he used the female body as a basis for an exploration of abstraction and technique. Woman One, undoubtedly the most famous work of the series and found today in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, best exemplifies what was so attention-grabbing and startling about de Kooning's new direction. The woman featured in Woman One has the same large breasts and wide hips that have been favored in depictions of fertility goddesses throughout time. But what is different is how violently she is portrayed. 
She's huge and hulking, created out of a series of slashing, almost wild-seeming brushstrokes that have made some critics wonder if it is a practically literal depiction of pure misogyny. Sure, Woman One is grotesque. She's even got these misshapen eyes and also buck teeth. But there's a force and an energy to her too, as if her presence just can't be denied. It's quite possible that de Kooning meant his women to be comedic too, at least to some degree, because they all seem to be smiling. So whether or not those grins are ones of amusement or menace, or whether or not the artist is mocking womankind, those are two unresolved questions. In the early 1950s, things appeared on the outside to be going very well for Jackson Pollock, too. His newfound name recognition, combined with the nation's interest in his working methods of the man they deemed Action Jackson, had reached a fever pitch. In 1950, a documentarian named Hans Namuth approached Pollock with an idea for a film about Pollock and his techniques, but Pollock wasn't so sure about the whole thing. Ultimately, he agreed to participate in the film. But when Namuth asked him to create works in front of the camera, Pollock began to lose confidence, citing that it felt really insincere, less art-making and more performance. It's a shame, really, because this documentary is honestly one of the coolest artifacts we have about practically any artist ever. A scene in which Namuth's camera captures Pollock dripping paint onto a pane of glass fitted above the camera lens is probably one of the most iconic moments in 20th century art. But Pollock hated the whole thing. It made him feel like a fraud and a sellout, and it drove him to a desperate decision. For most of his adult life, Pollock suffered from severe alcoholism and was treated for a variety of psychological problems. With Lee Krasner's care and support, he had battled his own demons, but nevertheless found it difficult to form many close bonds, and his own machismo, ego, and competitiveness frequently led him to barroom brawls. But in the late 1940s, he got sober, and he stayed that way for two years, until the evening that the last scene in the documentary was shot. He was not well-equipped to deal with fame, and so he sought solace where he could, back in the bottle. All things came to a head in 1953 for the big open of Willem de Kooning's Woman series, shown for the very first time at the Sydney Janus Gallery in New York. Most of the attendees were in awe of Willem de Kooning's works and lauded him. But then Jackson Pollock walked through the door. He didn't walk across the room to shake de Kooning's hand or offer his congratulations. Instead, he raised his voice and yelled across the gallery, Bill, you betrayed it. You're still doing the same goddamn thing. You know, you never got out of being a figure to painter. It seemed that Pollock was sneering at a purported lack of inventiveness on de Kooning's part. His inability to find a means of pure and total abstraction as Pollock himself had done. But that wasn't it at all. It was that Pollock's own career by 1953 was on a downward trajectory due to his intense alcoholism. And he was using de Kooning's own art opening to publicly lash out at his rival. It was indicative of a sea change and both artists knew it. Although de Kooning had been in Pollock's shadow throughout the mid and late 1940s, by 1953, he had supplanted Pollock as the best modern artist in America. As Pollock's alcoholism grew, his life spiraled out of control and his popularity faded. Pollock left Betty Parsons' gallery in 1952, and an article in Partisan Review declared that he was, quote, washed up in 1955. 
and sadly, things never really got better for him. He continued drinking and, fed up with it and his philandering, Lee Krasner left her husband during the summer of 1956, seeking refuge in Europe to visit friends and to pursue her own artistic endeavors. But she had to cut her trip short when she received news that Pollock had been killed after crashing his car in Long Island while driving with his mistress, Ruth Kligman, and her friend, Edith Metzger. Kligman would be the sole survivor. In a cruel twist of fate, the rivalry between de Kooning and Pollock thus came to an end. Sebastian Smee states that after the death of Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, quote, seemed bent on maintaining a connection with the dead artist and rival, unquote. And the links that he went to maintain this connection is actually really astonishing. First is the oft-repeated tale that at Pollock's own funeral, de Kooning is said to have flatly declared, quote, it's over, I'm number one is cruel and cutthroat, but it also very clearly illustrates that the notion of rivalry had played the central role in his own understanding of their relationship. On a personal level, de Kooning did something just as shocking less than a year after Pollock's death when he began having an affair with Pollock's own grieving mistress, Ruth Kligman, the one who survived the fatal crash. They dated for several years, all while de Kooning was married, by the way, to another important artist, Elaine de Kooning. And then, in 1963, a final funky connection. Absconding from the city, de Kooning moved to Springs, the very same town where Pollock and Krasner had lived years before. And there he bought a house across the street from the Green River Cemetery, where Pollock was buried. He lived in East Hampton for the rest of his very long life when he succumbed at the age of 92 in 1997. Maybe he just loved Springs. Maybe the house across the street from the cemetery was a really good deal and had really great northern light for painting and a big tract of land to build a studio. Or maybe de Kooning, consciously or unconsciously, did it to thumb his nose at a dead rival, asserting his superiority once and for all. Maybe it was all of the above. Pollock and de Kooning are often spoken about in the same breath as two of the great innovators of mid-century modern art, alongside Andy Warhol, Mark Rothko, and Jasper Johns, to name a few. Luckily, though, we are able to view them as separate and equally important for the works that they have made. Both of them were hugely influential for the generations who came after them, and we no longer feel quite the urge to pit them against one another as they themselves did. But there are two people whose lives and artistic careers were so overshadowed by Pollock and de Kooning that, even now, they really are never discussed without at least alluding to their connections to the male superstars. We've already mentioned both of them in this episode. They are Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning, the wives of today's subjects, and their unnecessary and mostly unwanted comparison to their famous husbands is the subject of our next episode. That's coming up in two weeks on the Art Curious Podcast. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research assistance by Stephanie Pryor. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video 
content ideas. Learn more at kabonkicom The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. And thank you again to the generous folks at AnchorLight for funding this third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to our show and it is fully tax deductible. So follow the donate links on our website for more details. And as always, you can go to our website for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. And you can find us also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And don't forget, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell anyone you want about the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in rivalries of art history.